Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Gini. This is Ambassadors at Large. And hello and welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you with us. This is episode 28. Should be a good one. I've got a couple of my good friends in studio to help out. Uh, and we're going to talk about U.S. foreign policy towards East Asia. And with us today, we've got Hunter Marston, who's a Southeast Asia analyst at a DC think tank. He's been published in a number of institutions, including the National Interest, Foreign Policy, Nikkei, and the New York Times, among others. Uh, and al- alongside him, we've got Colin Lawrence, who's an analyst for the federal government specializing in human rights and Asia-Pacific issues, and is also co-founder of a group called the Forum on International Affairs, which is based in Washington, DC. Uh, guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. We're glad to be here. Uh, and I should say that they are both speaking uh, in their own capacity and not for their uh, respective organizations. Um, so uh, I guess uh, the the reason we have a new president and uh, his foreign policy, I guess, how shall I put this? Slash and burn. Yeah. Uh, so until this administration... Maybe maybe you guys disagree, but but it seemed like a lot of U.S. policy towards East Asia had a general bipartisan f- feel to it. That it kind of you know whether the Bush administration or whether the Obama administration, or whether the Clinton administration was in office, there was this sort of set of issues. China is rising as a you know as a strategic competitor, but not a, a hostile power. North Korea is dangerous. Our, our relations with and our security relations with with Japan and and South Korea are really close. Uh, and and uh, there's just a, a set of issues that, you know, promoting human rights and uh, this sort of thing. Um, everything's kind of in flux now in a way that it hasn't been before. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said that we're seeing a shift in policy. Um, not so much in a, like a kind of like thought out process, but it seems like whereas before, like you said, there was kind of a string that you could pull through previous administrations regarding um, East Asia and the Asia Pacific, um, that things have become a little bit more ad hoc and maybe a little bit more reactionary moving forward. Right. I think before we really get into analyzing the Trump administration's policies and Asia policies specifically, uh, just a historical footnote, I'd say also that you know we've had these uh, radical shifts before in Asia policy with mm. administrations uh, such as Nixon, uh, who um, really made a sea change in U.S. policy towards Asia with the trip to China, resetting relations there. Um, that has probably been the largest uh, architectural uh, complete reconstruction of Asia policy in the last um, half half century, in my opinion. Uh, also, we, we've had some rather surprising uh, suggestions before, such as Jimmy Carter's suggestion to pull uh, U.S. troops out of South Korea that have been uh, actually dialed back and reset onto a more uh, normal, traditional U.S. policy track. And that'll be really interesting to see if that happens again, because during the campaign, uh, the Trump uh, campaign would make, or Trump himself, I should say, would make uh, these kind of off-the-cuff remarks that would 
totally rattle the entire security architecture of Northeast Asia. Like perhaps, you know, uh, South Korea and Japan should get their own nuclear weapons, this sort of thing. But, but once, once he gets into office, the, one of the first things he does is he calls the South Koreans to reassure them that that's not necessary, that, that we're, we're with them to the end and, uh, and reassuring the South Koreans that, uh, that they don't have to rethink their entire security posture vis-a-vis North Korea. So uh, perhaps, this is going to be much ado about nothing, and it'll revert to the mean, but perhaps not. And and more than any previous administration in my lifetime, there's I feel like there's been a, a there's a tremendous degree of uncertainty. So I wanted to talk about a, a number of things. In you know, um, one are sort of our general uh, policy towards the region uh, and, and how what's going to happen sort of post Pacific pivot. Uh, one about our, our policy towards the Philippines in particular, which I think is, is going to be telling uh, one about the recent flare up and, and uh, issues with North Korea and its continuing nuclear program and some of the provocative actions it's taken lately. Uh, and then finally, US China relations, which are sort of, uh, you know, the elephant in the room, especially given some of the things that Trump said on the campaign trail. So let's start with the uh, with the Pacific pivot. This was uh, Barack Obama's idea that uh, basically we were expending too many resources in the Middle East, not enough, uh, or, or that, that we should be focusing more on the Pacific. And some people argue that it was less of a Pacific pivot and more of a Pacific weight shifting, you know, from one foot to the other, uh, that we didn't actually do that much, that we just sort of focused on the Middle East less without focusing on, on Asia more. But, um, the center of this was really the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Now that the Trans-Pacific Partnership is dead, what happens to the Pacific pivot? Well, when it comes to diplomatic engagement, I mean, a phrase that's tossed out quite often is the idea of a, a toolbox, right? And that when we're engaging in a specific foreign policy for the United States with specific aims, we've got different tools that we can use, whether it be the U.S. Commercial Service, uh, U.S. Department of State, um, various parts of the defense establishment, um, or even just personal relations based on connections between our ambassadors and other members of the United States kind of uh, elite. Uh, I think that with TPP out of the way in terms of the United States kind of adamant refusal to take to, uh, to engage in that any further, I think that removes a tool out of our toolbox and with discussions about various downsizings for the federal government, uh, especially for the commercial service uh, and special trade representatives, and the Department of State as well, um, that, that those are going to be more tools removed. And so for the United States to be able to establish a pivot, um, they're not going to have a lot of flexibility. Right. As far as uh, weight shifting you referenced earlier goes, uh, the idea was that uh, the United States could pivot like a basketball player, planting its foot and focus on uh, two sides or, or, or uh, I guess, all hemispheres. Um, so not that it was leaving or returning, but that it was renewing emphasis in Asia. Um, and I think the U.S. clearly recognizes that the future of uh, the global economy is shifting towards Asia with some of the fastest growing economies in the world. Um, China is set to surpass the U.S. in GDP uh, debatably in the next um, seven years, I believe, mm. uh, by some counts. And Japan... Um, also one of the top three economies in the world, uh, the gravity of economic power has shifted to Asia. So the U.S. has uh, recognized that it 
depends for its well-being American jobs, exports, and imports uh, on the Asian region. Um, so it makes sense to shift to Asia. Um, the Obama administration has been accused or was accused of uh, shifting too much or too little in the way of uh, military resources. Some say it's over-militarized uh, the Pacific um, or over-militarized the pivot by uh, shifting naval resources and not moving as quickly on certain things like TPP, which the Obama administration, USTR, had finished negotiating but had failed to pass or get past the uh, finish line in the end. Um, so I think that imbalance potentially is what worries me most going forward. Uh, with the withdrawal from TPP, the Trump administration has essentially said, uh, we don't have an economic strategy for Asia. We're not going to be invested in the multilateral trade architecture of the region. But uh, Trump's advisors, such as Peter Navarro and Alex Gray, have advocated uh, strongly for a renewed naval presence in the region, a stronger military footprint in Asia, and I think that'll continue to discolor the uh, American engagement in Asia in years to come. So I want to turn now to uh, the question of, of U.S. relations with the Philippines. Uh, this was historically a, because as I said, I think it's it's kind of going to be indicative for how we're going to uh, deal with, uh, with with issues, particularly with the, the South China Sea. So this was a, a relationship that was historically complicated, but generally pretty tight. And especially as uh, China rose, uh, the Philippines looked, to the United States to help uh, defend its interests. Uh, and there are some disputed islands and there was a ruling at the International Court of Justice um, and that was in favor of the Philippines and China did not like this. All of a sudden, uh, this new president gets elected, Rodrigo Duterte, and he starts this war on drugs, which involves thousands, literally thousands of extrajudicial killings. And the Obama administration starts protesting this because, you know, generally the United States does not uh, support this sort of thing. Um, and uh, Duterte lashes out and starts insulting Obama in press conferences and in public fora. Uh, a meeting between them gets canceled. Re the re relations just go off of a cliff. And now Trump comes into office and... Duterte is sort of starting to say warm things about China, and it looks like he might sort of reconfigure the Philippines' position. But now all of a sudden, the major sticking point, which was these human rights issues about this war on drugs, suddenly don't matter to the United States because we have an administration that just doesn't care about human rights. <laughs> so what's going to happen with the U.S.-Philippine relationship, do you think? Um, well, I'll be brief because I think Colin has a little more uh, experience in the Philippines and knowledge on the country. Uh, but there's been some speculation that perhaps Trump and Duterte are poised to get along well. They're both uh, strong men, populists, uh, at least want to project themselves as strong men. Uh, Duterte's bragged about killing people himself. Um, he's also suggested that Trump called him to express support for the drug war. So this would be a big change from the standard uh, U.S. position on extrajudicial killings in the Philippines that were uh, uh, the previous administration being a lot more 
uh, reticent to engage the Duterte administration for fears of getting involved with a human rights abuser uh, of grave uh, significance. So Trump so far hasn't seemed to give a whole lot of attention to the Philippines or Southeast Asia writ large uh, for that matter. Um, but there's potential for them to get along. But at the same time, I'd also argue that there's potential for them to um, probably, uh, uh, there, there could be a spat uh, if, if one of them uh, says the wrong thing to the other. Uh, they both seem like reactionary, shoot from the hip types. Um, so there's potential for the two of them to uh, have an argument that flares up, uh, cooling of relations. Um, but as far as the big picture goes with the Philippines balancing with the United States or balancing with China versus the other. I think the previous administration of Benigno Aquino was uh, very pro-U.S., uh, and it might have been an outlier in, in some ways. Uh, the U.S. was actually ejected from Subic Bay Naval Base in 1992, so the Philippines has a history of uh, nationalism and opposition to U.S. presence in the country. Uh, in some ways, it's viewed as a colonial occupier. Uh, so the Philippines has some ill will towards America, but also generally a positive impression of the United States and Americans. Um, uh, so the current relationship shows that, if anything, I think uh, the Duterte administration is bringing relations more towards the center by recognizing that China is carrying increasing weight in the region economically, uh, cutting deals with Manila, and also, um, militarily, China is rising, expanding its presence in the South China Seas near the Philippines, uh, which could be perceived as menacing, or um, perhaps the Duterte administration could warm to Beijing and strike a more cordial relationship for its own security. Do you think that there's there's that this could lead to if, if we and we'll get to U.S. China relations in a minute, but if if they remain rocky, could this ultimately lead to kind of like during the Cold War, how there were a lot of non-aligned states that would kind of play off the great powers against each other and try and get get you know infrastructure projects and warm relations and and just basically try and and, and play both sides of, uh, or uh, or is it going to be different this time? Um, again, just real quick, because I want to let Colin talk on the Philippines. Um, but in some ways, uh, as you look at Southeast Asia, actually the non-aligned movement is still very strong. Countries like Singapore maintain very close relations with China and the U.S. Uh, and they're not the only ones by any means. Uh, India, slightly far to the west, uh, also is very reticent to engage too closely with uh, the United States, although they also have a lot of hostility with China with a border dispute. Uh, but looking at the Philippines and other countries around Southeast Asia, the small countries I don't think want to be made to choose between China or the U.S. Um, I think that's what they're most wary of. They want to maintain good relations with both. Um, and I think their economic well-being increasingly depends on successful uh, relations with China and peaceful relations between China and the U.S. And I think there's something to be said that, you know, especially in the Philippines. Uh, the United States is very, very popular. Um, it, uh, constant polls that are done uh, within the Philippines have like something around an 80% approval rate uh, when it comes to uh, um, foreign relations. And that a lot of that's historical. There's a lot of trade that goes back and forth, a lot of movement of people back and forth between the United States and the Philippines. And there's constantly a, uh, <laughs> a comparison that's made between Donald Trump and, excuse me, President Donald Trump and now President Rodrigo Duterte, um, as they're both populists. They and call him the Trump of Asia, right? That's right, Trump of yeah. Asia. 
And one of the things that we have to remember is that when we're dealing with populists and when we're handling populists is that they're not speaking to other countries, they're speaking to their constituents. Um, so when Duterte speaks, he's speaking to his domestic audience. And when Donald Trump speaks, he's not speaking to China, he's not speaking to Russia, he's not, well, that's to be debated, but um, <laughs> he's not speaking necessarily to the, the foreign policy blob or however you, you want to talk about it. He's talking to the domestic audience because those are the people that are responsible for his election. So reading too far into about what that means for policy can be um, um, a little misleading. And there's also some major differences between someone like Donald Trump and Rodrigo Duterte, one being public service. Um, Rodrigo Duterte made his name um, following in his family's footsteps as the mayor of Davao, uh, one of the most developed cities in, uh, in the Philippines and in Southeast Asia, and was able to make that a name for himself through these kind of brutal tactics um, of establishing these kind of death squads that would go throughout um, Davao and... Uh, basically killing people that were either dealing in drugs or engaging in drug deals and basically pushing all the drug traffickers out of his jurisdiction um, into neighboring areas. Uh, but the Philippines has a massive problem when it comes to, to drugs, particularly methamphetamines um, or shabu as it's referred to. Um, and it affects people on every level. You see it, the Philippines is, is a country that struggles with a, a roughly 20% poverty rate. And it, when you get hooked on something like Shabu or in the United States, if you get hooked on heroin as an, an opioid epidemic that we're seeing, there isn't always treatment that's available. And so you see this as kind of an easy way to make money for a lot of people. So with Duterte coming into office, he was able to exploit some domestic political elements within the, the, the previous party of President Aquino um, to his effect. And Colin, is uh, why why is Duterte so popular? Is the drug war popular? Is that correct, as I understand it? The drug war is popular, and a lot of that has to do is that everybody knows that somebody that's affected by drugs. Um, but the, one of the reasons that the drug war is popular is because the judicial system in the Philippines has uh, needs a lot of work. Um, most cases take around twenty years to get processed, and if you're rich, um, you basically get off with any charges that are against you. If you're poor, you go to jail and you remain in jail for the, the duration of, of the, as the case moves forward. So Duterte was elected and his, and his campaign is popular. However, the problem is coming now is that even though he still has something between a 60 and 80% approval rating amongst Filipinos, is that it's becoming more evident and more clear that some of these killings that are be done, being done by vigilantes as well as members of the law enforcement, and police, particularly the PNP, uh, the local police, uh, that some of these people that are being killed just happen to be political opponents of Rodrigo Duterte. And we all know that Rodrigo Duterte, along with <laughs> President Trump, um, both kind of have thin skins when it comes to criticism. And his major critic in, in the, the Filipino Congress is a woman named Senator de Lima, and she was arrested in the end of February on what, on face value, seemed like very trumped-up charges, and it's kind of had a, a disturbing effect on the local environment about whether people want to criticize um, Duterte's policies um, for fear of either them being killed or being threatened. And with the United States, as it comes towards our specific policies towards the Philippines, there's a lot of talk 
um, that uh, Duterte puts forward this machismo feeling, much like uh, Donald Trump does. But not really much has changed in terms of our, our military relationship um, with the coordination, what we have between the various bases and some of these new bases that aren't new so much as being reopened um, and increasing our um, collaboration and our efforts, especially in terms of dealing with um, certain rebel groups uh, like uh, the Abu Sayyaf group, which has been aligned with groups like uh, Al-Qaeda and others and are known for being very brutal and going after Americans and beheading them. And the U.S. has special forces in the southern Philippines fighting Abu Sayyaf, right? For a long time, yeah. I think they're, they actually withdrew some of those forces recently as they completed a campaign and as Duterte prepares for um, further negotiations with a different rebel group uh, known as the MILF, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, um, in, a, in attempts to kind of bring a better peace agreement between the Mindanao region, where he's from, actually, and uh, the, the northern region and the, uh, the middle region of the Philippines, which are kind of historically Catholic, where the south is historically uh, Muslim. That's a whole nother conversation to get into. Uh, but basically, despite the rhetoric, uh, relations between the United States are still good. But the problem is going to be something related called the Leahy Act. And what the Leahy Act initiates is that any trading that the United States provides um, for, an, for a partnering country cannot be provided to anyone who's committed a human rights violation. Um, so we see this kind of issue when it comes to certain collaborations in um, Cambodia or Vietnam and now in the Philippines based on certain law enforcement or intelligence service um, folks who have on record uh, have committed torture or um, extrajudicial killings. And that's going to be a big factor in the relationship between the Philippines and the United States because this isn't something that's instituted by President Obama or even uh, President Bush, but it's instituted by a congressional act. Uh, which means that it's the law of the land and would have to be repealed um, to be able to be ignored. How has the U.S. dealt, because the U.S. deals with countries that have spotty human rights records in many parts of the world, how in practice does the Leahy Act wind up working in these in such cases? And, and sort of what to what extent can Trump get around it? Uh, well, perhaps Thailand offers an example here, not necessarily a successful one, but uh, <laughs> after the 2014 coup in Bangkok, uh, the U.S. Uh, withheld a great deal, millions in aid, um, and restricted its annual multilateral military engagement uh, or joint drills there with uh, other regional partners to uh, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations. Um, so we can restructure the way we deploy aid and assets to these partners and allies in the region uh, to send messages. Uh, the concern is that, uh, and it's overblown in my opinion, uh, is that we are um, losing ground to China by doing so. I think, if anything, uh, we should take the long-term perspective. In the long-term, Thailand and the Philippines don't want to be reliant uh, on Beijing any more than they want to be mm. reliant on the United States for their security. They are sovereign nations. Um, they will make decisions that are in their best interest in the long run. So we have to work with them to support their human rights, uh, democracy activists, and hope that the military relations uh, maintain a relatively stable and open dialogue throughout these rocky periods. I want to turn now to uh, to our policy towards North Korea. Uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson recently had a, a visit to uh, 
to uh, the uh, the Northeast Asian region, and uh, in it he made some interesting comments that may or may not signal a change in U.S. policy, where he basically said the current policy is not working, and uh, and implied that the military option could be on the table. And so that that ruffled a lot of feathers, especially given that we're dealing with a, a much more bellicose administration in the Trump administration. But nothing that he said actually is... I mean, the Obama administration also felt that what they were doing wasn't working and that there, there was just nothing to talk about with the North Koreans, and so we weren't talking to them. And uh, and the Obama administration didn't take off the, the military option from the table either. They just you know, it just wasn't going to happen, but, but you know, they left their options open. So uh, going forward, we've seen a couple of provocative acts by the North Koreans. I mean, for years now, they've been developing this nuclear weapons program. They have done multiple nuclear tests. They've done a bunch of missile tests. They're trying to, trying to further refine their missiles so that they can, you know, you know, in their view, hopefully reach the United States at some point, uh, which is really scary. And, uh, uh, um, we also saw this deranged incident where they used a weapon of mass destruction to assassinate the uh, brother of uh, Kim Jong-un in a Malaysian airport, uh, which is insane and, and utterly provocative and, and towards Malaysia of all countries, which is one of the few countries that actually has, you know, had warm diplomatic relations with them uh, until that point. Um, much has been made that we have kind of two unstable leaders running North Korea and the United States, each in their own way. Is there a chance for miscalculation or or um, or is this a conflict that is not likely to, to happen just because of the same reasons that it's not happened up until this point? Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of North Korea, Northeast Asia analysts are rightly saying uh, that North Korea could be the earliest foreign policy propagation to greet the Trump administration. Um, there's some speculation that with the Trump-Xi summit occurring on Thursday, that uh, North Korea, who has been clamoring about getting ready for the next nuclear test, could uh, demonstrate its uh, time-tested ability to shake the boat and make its presence known once again. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if, uh, and I'm not trying to make any predictions, but I wouldn't be shocked if North Korea does conduct conduct another nuclear or missile test in the very near future. Uh, they've been very busy in the last year. The administration or the, the regime of Kim Jong-un uh, in particular has been uh, very adamant about its uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, Kim himself has personally been cited at most of these missile tests, uh, which signals that he's personally invested <clears throat> personally invested in the uh, weapons program. Uh, so I think there's uh, every chance that North Korea will soon again lash out and uh, attempt to feel out the Trump administration and see if they'll react with uh, a new policy of sorts. And I have no doubt that, you know, people are looking at what Secretary, Secretary Tillerson is saying um, and trying to kind of read the tea leaves, so to speak, and try to pull out different meanings from his policy, um, especially in the context of comments made by President Trump. And um, it, what it, I would it, it would have helped if if Tillerson had brought journalists with him, <laughs> like most secretaries of state. But proceed. Yeah. And I think some of that has to do with and I'll give him credit, like the record, the the reputation of Secretary Tillerson is, is a good manager. 
um, which was part of one of the reasons why he was brought into the administration um, and was was recommended by people like former Secretary Bob Gates. Um, he was known to be a sensible guy. And he's got experience in Asia with ExxonMobil, too. Absolutely. So for him to get the handle on, one, how to handle relations with the president, and two, how to handle a bureaucracy, not a, a company, because things are run, things naturally run differently when you're not driven by profits. Um, so balancing that and seeing that, I think Secretary Tillerson is still getting the, the handle about what it is that he can do, what it is that he will do, um, and what the capabilities are for the Department of State. And reorganization is coming. Um, we also see that in terms of the anticipated about 28 to 29% cut in funds based on uh, the, the budget put forward Which by... Which Tillerson isn't making much of a stand to fight for, against, right? Nope, he's not pushing back on it. But, he's been t- but he knew this coming in, that that was going to happen. It's, it's fascinating because there's this, this old theory of, of how people act called where you stand is where you sit, where basically... If you're put in charge of an agency, you will come to represent the interests of that agency. And uh, this is kind of a, a pretty sharp rebuttal to that, where, where Tillerson is like not, you know, you previous secretaries of state, if there had been a, a massive cut in state's funding proposed, uh, would have would have raised a stink, I think. Um, and and Tillerson seems to seems to be, you know, going along with the program. Now, the, the question I have is, are these cuts actually going to happen or is Congress not going to let this happen? I think it's fair to say that there are enough advocates within the Defense Department alone um, that would prevent most of these, all of these cuts from happening. Um, There are going to be some cuts, absolutely. That is the agenda of the president and has been a part of his campaign cycle. And quite frankly, he doesn't trust the Department of State because he views it as more or less as Hillary land. Uh, because a lot of people that were active in uh, Hillary's Department of State um, also joined her campaign. And she had a, a, an historic number of foreign policy analysts that supported her in her run for the president. In the, the uh, Department of Defense, the Pentagon has long been a more conservative establishment, while the State Department is sort of a, in a, a liberal holdout. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean... Department of State has to do all the talking, has to do all the dancing, has to do all the the small nuanced work um, that is less straightforward. Um, And so it requires a a level of ambiguity in terms of language and application. And unfortunately, since probably, well, since 2009 at least, um, there's been a a downtick in uh, in hiring at the Department of State in terms of foreign service officers. Um, And so having a limited number of foreign service officers at post means that we have stretched resources and being able to address concerns that are happening on the ground. I think uh, an excellent example is that in 2000, was it 2012, uh, we see a number of protests regard reacting to uh, that video on YouTube. Um, and those protests um, resulted in there being demonstrations outside of a number of embassies um, in, the, in, uh, in the Middle East, North Africa region. And all these things are happening instantly. You know, we got Twitter and we've got YouTube and all that stuff is happening. And if you've got a limited number of staff at some of these consulates and some of these embassies, they can only do so much. Uh, But going back onto the original point about people reading into Secretary Tillerson's language, I think you're absolutely right. He's the language he's using is not dis not not dissimilar to language used by previous secretaries and previous presidents. 
Uh, I think the talk um, being put forward about the U.S. is looking to do a preemptive strike against North Korea is inaccurate. Um, we are not going to engage in a preemptive strike against North Korea for the same reasons that we wouldn't do so with Iran. And that's because their facilities are too spaced out and too hard to reach that in a first strike capability, we're not going to get everything. And if you don't get everything on that first strike, you kind of screwed yourself for being able to engage in diplomacy after that. And there's also, I mean, North Korea kind of operates like they're they're basically operating a regional hostage taking uh, defense <laughs> policy. Yes. Where they they're outgunned, they're grossly outgunned. Uh, the United States has an extensive military presence in the region, but even without that, like the South Koreans would be able to to crush the North Koreans if if they actually fought a war together. I mean, the well, South- that's true, but there is a important caveat for that. Um, disproportionate level of military capability. And that's that the North Koreans have a couple thousand, I'm not sure what the exact number of, artillery items pointed at Seoul. Exactly. And those would... Not far across the border. Not far at all. And would pretty much obliterate Seoul if a a military engagement happened. And Seoul is one of the largest metropolitan areas on the planet. um, And that would be basically putting the lives of at least 20 million people instantly at risk and, and that's and that's the hostage taking uh, they know they would lose an actual conflict and so their posture has basically been to raise and this is why they've developed a nuclear weapons program even though they're an incredibly poor country uh they they want to raise the cost of attacking them to the point that uh that no one in their right mind would do it now the problem is is that they don't just stop there. They also they also commit provocative acts of aggression against the South. They fire missiles uh, that go into the Sea of Japan. They uh, you know uh, conduct assassinations in Malaysian airports, and these things are just totally unacceptable. But no one is really able to do anything about it or stop their slowly but surely developing nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missile programs because to do so would risk war with the North and that would risk the destruction of Seoul. Right, uh, and. For all these reasons, we are short on policy options. Uh, the Obama administration relied on a combination of ratcheting up sh- sanctions and combining that with diplomacy typically aimed at China. Uh, the Trump administration, for all of its statements that the current policy is not working, uh, seems to be more or less following in the footsteps of the Obama administration. Uh, if anything, Trump has indicated that he's willing to pursue a more aggressive form of that strategy, which is going to primarily put more pressure on China to do something about North Korea, which he feels uh, it has a great deal of influence over. Uh, Rightly so. Uh, China um, has a lot of economic leverage in North Korea uh, and used to have a great deal more diplomatic sway uh, and closer relations. But we've seen Beijing recently halt coal imports, which is a major... um, uh, major it has an impact uh, to the negative uh, on North Korea's economy, uh, may weaken them further, drive some pressure on the regime to come to the negotiating table. Um, and I think it was I think it was something like a fifty percent cut in uh, coal production that was being provided or that was being imported into uh, into North Korea from China. It's also the the other thing about the North Koreans is that they're such a, a hermit 
regime that it's very difficult to know anything about them. And so we're, we're left kind of reading, you know, like you said, reading tea leaves. Um, and when you're doing that about multiple actors on the field, it becomes really difficult to actually figure out what's going on. I mean, the, the, I heard all sorts of, you know, why would they do this with the, the assassination of Kim Jong-nam in Malaysia? Um, what, 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 you know, what would they possibly gain out of it? And I heard all sorts of theories that this was a message to China, that it was a message to Malaysia, but no one really knows. And so it raises the possibility for, for, uh, a miscalculation, I think, to a higher level than it than it has been at previous points. I think the most that can be said about the Kim Jong Nam assassination, uh, if anything, is that it points to regime instability. Uh, Kim Jong Un perceives or perceived his older half brother as a threat. Uh, there were rumors that China had considered or was actively grooming him for a potential Plan B inside of. Uh, Pyongyang as their point person if the regime crumbled. Uh, Kim Jong-un had threatened his life years ago, uh, had failed to or was unable to uh, carry out such an attack on Kim Jong-nam. He was perhaps the last remaining viable um, heir who could have usurped the Kim Jong-un throne. So in some ways this is about consolidating power, which he's been doing since he came to power, and uh, eliminating threats. Uh, so again, I think it points to some regime instability, the paranoia and uh, self-guarded interests uh, and actions of the Kim Jong-un administration. And I think connecting on to that, I mean, the current leader of North Korea is a young guy. I mean, he's younger than the three of us for sure. And when when he was starting to be groomed for the position to take over from his father, um, it's suspected that he was one of the people that pushed for the the torpedo attack on the um, on the the South Korean Corvette class ship that was sunk and sunk by what most people expect was a mini submarine another technology that the Koreans have been developing and have even managed to launch a few I think missiles even um, from from out in the ocean um, out of their submarines now if you look at these submarines they're they're kind of comical to look at but the fact that they're advancing that kind of technology, um, the King Jong-un is trying to make a name for himself. He's eliminated most of the senior staff um, that came in under his father. Including his uncle. Including his uncle. Who was close to China. And now his brother was the last person to be able to see to kind of like overshadow him, even though he had been disgraced for trying. And he, had, he hadn't been allowed back to North Korea for years, right? Yeah, something about getting caught trying to sneak into Tokyo Disney. But spent um, a lot of time in Macau. Hilarious. And, yeah, but was making most of his time in Macau anyhow. Well, uh, I'd like to also touch on the South Korean part of the equation. Um, I don't think that the Trump administration or Tillerson have really factored that in. The current political instability, uh, extreme upheaval in South Korea's domestic politics right now with the arrest following the impeachment of former President Park Geun-hee really throws the uh, South Korean agency on the North Korean factor into question. Uh, The next administration will likely be far more liberal than the conservative Park Geun-hee administration and has been making noise about uh, protesting or slowing down the deployment of the American THAAD or Terminal High Altitude 
aerial defense. Aerial defense. I think. Thank you. That double A T H A A D missiles that have been rolled out in South Korea as a shield against the nuclear threat of North Korea, uh, and has even made the current liberal candidate has made some uh, indication that he'd be willing, much more uh, open to negotiating with the North, which seems to be popular in South Korea. And the, and uh, the South Koreans sort of go back and forth on this where you know you'll have the sunshine policy and then you'll have a more confrontational policy and 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 it'll and neither one really works because the north koreans are dead set on developing this nuclear weapons capability and uh, it doesn't seem like anything's going to change anytime soon but the fact that it could change is scary because almost any change would be for the worse at this point, unless, you know, unless the North Korean regime radically transforms its behavior, there's just not much uh, that, that, that outside powers can do without risking a massive war. Now I want to transition and, and and that that missile program is, is actually a good way to do this because it, it pissed off the Chinese. Um, I want to transition to U S policy towards China, which is kind of in some ways the biggest wild card of all. And, you know, this relationship is going to arguably more than anything else define the 21st century. These are the two biggest powers in the world militarily, uh, and, uh, and economically and the Trump administration. I mean, I'm trying to decide how out there what the Trump administration uh, has been saying is because a lot of U.S. candidates have run presidential campaigns that have been harsh on China, labeling them a currency manipulator, and then come into office and moderated their stance out of necessity. But uh, with, with Trump, especially his his view towards trade and and some of the things that his advisors have said, uh, most notably uh, Steve Bannon, incredibly saying we're going to be at war in the South China Sea within a few years, no doubt, uh, which is an insane insane thing to say. Well, that that was also before he entered government. Yes. <laughs> Still, though, he's he's now a, a fairly high-profile guy, and if he still holds that view, that's that's kind of terrifying. Um, uh, Hunter, you you wrote a a piece in the National Interest recently uh, that was titled "Trump Must Change Policy in Asia to Avoid a War in, with China." Uh, perhaps uh, you, you want to take a stab at kind of summarizing. We'll link to the article on on, on our website, but um, uh, perhaps uh, you want to take a stab at sort of saying what you think needs to happen to avoid a conflict. Right. Uh, so the title obviously is a little incendiary. Uh, I don't think war with China is all that likely in the near term. Uh, remains a very distant possibility. Uh, but of course, Trump, uh, his advisor, Steve Bannon, um, his trade, what's his title, uh, Steve Navarro, Peter Navarro, excuse me, uh, who he's appointed to the uh, Trade Commission. Yeah, he's kind of Trump's top China guy, even though he's not really a China hand. Right, so Navarro is regarded as a pretty far out there uh, viewpoint on China. Uh, he wrote this book called Death by China. There's a whole YouTube series, which I highly recommend checking out. Uh, it's entertaining, but it's it's extreme. Um, so there's this perception on the on the parts of Bannon and Navarro and others uh, around Trump uh, that we are locked in this competition with China. Uh, Trump, you know, I'm sure you've seen the YouTube or, or the meme, the GIF, uh, where Trump repeatedly says China, 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 China. It came up repeatedly on the campaign, mostly in an economic sense. I think the focus of uh, 
the Trump administration's problem with its beef with China is on the trade deficit, wrongly so, uh, because our trade remains robust uh, and deepening. Um, the Trump administration would do well to strike a cordial tone with, Ch with China due to the uh, deep levels of trade that our two nations enjoy together. China recognizes this as well. Uh, I think it was last year, Foreign Minister Wang Yi said that China and the U.S. cannot afford to go to war. It would be very costly. It would be devastating to both sides. Um, so it's my hope that we uh, balance the relationship in a healthy way and pursue warmer ties. That said, I think uh, we're off to a uh, tough footing. Uh, looking ahead at the this week's um, Trump-Xi summit in Mar-a-Lago, uh, which uh, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, has done a lot of work to organize uh, because of his so-called expertise on foreign affairs. Um, Trump's tweeted uh, just a couple nights ago, the summit will be a very difficult one highlighting the trade deficit and China's negative impact on American jobs. I think this is just wrong to uh, obsess over the trade deficit. I think there are a lot more productive and positive points that we can talk about first before we get into these nitty-gritty bickering disputes about the trade deficit and trade relations as they stand. I, I'm curious because there, you know, there is this sort of argument that if, if you just take it very simply by itself that that the US is outsourcing its jobs, importing cheap stuff and that that China's making all the stuff so their economy is growing and our economy is 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 grinding to a halt because we're not making anything anymore, we're just importing cheap stuff made by other countries. Uh, and so we have this trade deficit and and Trump says this trade deficit is bad for the United States. What's the sort of um what's what's the the counter argument for that? Uh, well, simplistically, that we depend on Chinese imports for a lot of our consumption. Walmart, um, Trump's own uh, supply chain for his hotels, uh, which I'm not sure if he realizes. Um, Hillary Clinton actually made this point uh, during the debate where he, he, Trump was talking about towers he'd built, and she interjected with Chinese steel. It was probably the best moment of the debate for her. <laughs> um, but right, especially because we've accused them of dumping uh, excess steel supplies. And so something I think that's also important to note is that when we talk about, and if you look at this in the election cycles in the United States for the last couple of years, but even before that, there's a lot of talk about how much U.S. debt in terms of trade bonds, um, treasury bonds, excuse me, that are owned by the Chinese, and that people argue that this kind of makes China the king of the United States, right? The kingmaker will decide our policy because they own all our debt. Um, they do. They own a ton of debt. They own about a trillion dollars worth of debt, depending on uh, what year it is and how the geopolitics are going. Japan also owns a lot of our debt, and I think it's something around $800 billion worth of treasury bonds. The reason that those countries do that is because U.S. treasury bonds are very, very, very reliable, and it helps to stabilize their own economies. And when you have that much money invested in terms of treasury bonds, um, from one state to another, they are invested so much that what happens to the U.S. dollar has a huge impact on their economy. So when people talk about the U.S. and China being deeply interwoven economically, this is an important thing to understand for folks is that China can't dictate the rules when it comes to how the Fed or any other government agency that works with um, our monetary or fiscal policy um, can't really dictate us what to do. 
um, and is still beholden to uh, to kind of the United States and how it engages their policy. And trade is an important element of that. Right. The other gripe is the uh, the uh, currency manipulation that yeah. Trump and uh, folks like Navarro have accused China of uh, artificially lowering their currency. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the last uh, several years, and you might just be a few years late, we've seen uh, China actually pumping up its currency to boost export uh, revenue rather than lower it. Yeah, this is true. I mean, you look at, especially since 2000, um, China has been engaged at one point or another trying to keep its currency low vis-a-vis the dollar and other times trying to build it up um, for various reasons. So the, the, the idea of it being a currency manipulator, there's some truth to that. Um, how much of a manipulator um, is up to debate, and it's certainly not something that's uncommon or not practiced by other countries. Lots of countries engage in this kind of uh, currency manipulation, but it's not a zero-sum situation. When they manipulate their currency, it has positive and negative effects um, on their local economy as well, which is why they have to be careful about how they do it, especially in in uh, relationship with the United States, because we are very deeply connected. Well, I guess we could also, I guess we could also be grateful that Trump didn't follow through in his campaign pledge to, on day one, declare China a currency manipulator, uh, which would have been the first sign of a potential trade war uh, and disastrous for both sides. I, I want to sort of conclude by asking you both sort of what what kind of keeps you up at night? What is more likely, a trade war or an actual war, for starters? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a loaded question. Uh, 2017, uh, the chances of a trade war have significantly lowered since Trump came to office. I'd still say that's much more likely than an actual war. Uh, I still think a war remains unlikely. I'm not a believer in the Thucydides trap, uh, which holds that a rising power... Uh, necessarily threatens the security of a superpower, and the superpower will act to prevent its rise, and this will lead to war. Um, I don't think that the two sides are doomed to that fate by any means, Uh, but if you shift the question to 2030, and China's now the bigger economy, uh, the U.S. still has troops in its near backyard. I think the uh, Chinese PLA, People's Liberation Army, uh, as the U.S. Army probably likewise wouldn't tolerate uh, forces in its periphery, uh, the equation, the shift of power will be such that China might decide to uh, provoke or push out somehow uh, U.S. naval presence, declaring an air identification zone uh, whereby it prevents the free flow of uh, American ships and vessels in the South China Sea, Uh, And this could easily escalate and lead to a situation where the U.S. finds itself defending its forces or those of our allies, such as the Philippines and their islands. Uh, China has talked about bulldozing, essentially, Scarborough Shoal and constructing another uh, Air Force ramp uh, on the island. Um, Similarly, the U.S. has certain defense pledges with Japan if China wanted to move in and take over the Senkaku Islands, which the two sides dispute. The U.S. might be bound, as um, Trump and, I believe, Mattis have both 
reaffirmed that they would defend those. Those fall within the scope of our mutual defense treaty, the alliance with Japan. There are all sorts of trigger points that could potentially unleash war. However, I still feel these are unlikely, um, but we can't rule the chance out, and that's why we have to talk to the Chinese and assure that we have uh, open lines of communication and protocols in place for situations like this that could um, significantly uh, dampen any chance for escalation if we have a mutual understanding on certain sensitive issues. I think in terms of trade war and uh, physical war, in terms of physical war with the U.S. as a primary aggressor or participant, I think it's less likely that we're going to be um, engaged in a primary conflict in the Asia-Pacific um, as opposed to the Middle East. I mean, we're already seeing now that there are Marines on the ground in Syria, and that conflict is not really anywhere close to being finished. Um, and so I think that in terms of physical war, uh, the U.S. is going to be distracted by primary conflicts elsewhere. Um, trade war-wise, there's a huge difference with today compared to what the world was like before World War One and before World War II. Um, uh, back in the day, <laughs> um, there was a lot of bilateral relationships as well as colonial relationships. So if a country had diplomatic relations deteriorating with another country, it had a huge impact immediately on their economics. Um, one of the results of World War II is was recognizing that the more deeply we're interconnected with our economies, um, that's why you see the rise of GATT, you see the rise of the eventually the WTO, um, and structures like the European Union um, were, geared, were geared towards national development as well as creating a community where basically everyone can kind of succeed. So if relations were to deteriorate between the United States and China, uh, it's not going to deteriorate as quickly as it might have if things were strictly bilateral relations um, as they were in times past. Now, if we want to talk about a physical conflict um, in the Asia-Pacific, I think that there is a possibility within the next five to ten years of there being a, a skirmish or physical altercation, but I don't think it'll be between the United States and China. Um, when it comes to China playing around in its backyard in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea, it can pretty much do what it wants to push around Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines uh, to a lesser extent Vietnam. But the person, excuse me, the country that it can't push around is Japan. The naval capabilities of Japan are much better in almost every category that matters. Um, and what my concern would be um, that maybe keeps me up at night <laughs> to answer your question is that if in the next five years there was a skirmish and the way that China has uh, in their own propaganda at home um, and, and talking to their, um, their population and the way that the Communist Party keeps control is that they play up the idea of the forever enemy of Japan um, and constantly reminding um, the local populace about you know, the horrors that Japan committed, and rightly so. There were terrible things that were committed in World War II, um, but constantly reminding the population, um, almost as a distraction. Um, and we see that a lot since 1989, um, especially after Tiananmen Square, where they're trying to build this idea of having a, a, a kind of Chinese nationalism um, and then finding an enemy. Yeah, the um, century of humiliation. They, they blame Japan, Great Britain... And the United States yeah, the United to an States. extent. And so my concern 
is that if there's a, some kind of skirmish, uh, it could start easily enough, maybe provocatively, or maybe by accident. Um, if the Chinese don't win that skirmish, um, even if it comes to a draw, that means they don't win. And so the Communist Party um, would have to deal with a huge domestic backlash in, in not defending the country against the forever enemy. And what that would create is a lot of perhaps domestic turmoil uh, back in China that could really um, set the stage for an upheaval of the domestic politic um, in China, especially considering the economy is no longer growing at um, double digits and has, and has even recently dipped below 6.5%. And there's a reason China spends more on internal defense uh, and security than its external uh, PLA uh, and national military. So what that would do is that what you'd probably have is that after some of that domestic turmoil settles down, probably a lot of people would die inside of China, is that the new government that would come to be, whether it's a reformed CCP or something else, would probably be even more nationalistic. And then you'd see the stage set for a conflict, perhaps in kind of the time frame that um, Hunter was looking at in maybe the 2030s. And that's the conflict that I would be concerned about. Yeah, the thing that concerns me is that the, the rise of nationalism in so many different places uh, and the rise of enough world leaders who don't believe in the international order that was developed in, after the Second World War, especially if you have that in the United States. But if you have that in a few other major powers and a few European powers that can start to weaken the European Union and uh, various actors in, in, in East Asia uh, that are revisionist, uh, it, it's, almost like, it's almost like a vaccination campaign. The international order only works if, if everybody believes in it. And if a few countries don't, if North Korea doesn't, that's, you know, that's one thing. But if the United States doesn't, then all of a sudden it weakens, the, 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 the sort of herd immunity of the, of the international order is weakened. And, and it raises the likelihood that there will be some nationalist will step on some other nationalist's toes and get into a war that, that doesn't have to happen. And that's the sort of thing that keeps me up at night. But hopefully it won't come to all of that. Um, in any case, uh, thank you both for coming on the podcast. Uh, where uh, Do you have anything to plug on the internet, Twitter accounts, uh, news pieces, you know, pieces you've written, anything? Thing that you would like uh, our listeners to, to check out? Uh, sure. I, I feel uh, this is a shameless plug. It, I've never had to do this before. Uh, in May, uh, this is Hunter speaking, uh, I've got a piece coming out in Georgetown's Journal of International Affairs. If you're curious about Southeast Asia after Obama, the future of the pivot or rebalance in Southeast Asia, uh, that'll be in the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs in May. Um, my recent piece in Foreign Policy titled uh, provocatively, uh, not my choice. Uh, Trump has nothing for Asia but threats, uh, sums up a lot of these points I made about the imbalance between our economic and military strategies. And for myself, I'm one of the co-founders of the Forum on International Affairs. Follow us on uh, Facebook, Meetup, um, and we also have a website, forumoninternationalaffairs.org. And we have an event coming up at the end of April, April 25th, that's looking at tenacious Taiwan between the great powers. Uh, we encourage anyone to show up. Our organization is focused on organizing, engaging discussions on global issues, and everyone is welcome. 
As for the podcast itself, you can find it on uh, iTunes. Uh, you can subscribe for free by searching for Ambassadors at Large. If you like it, uh, leave a five-star review or even a four-star review. Uh, reviews help uh, spread the word about the podcast. You can also find uh, the podcast as well as uh, my writings, uh, research, music, etc. Uh, on my website at joegenie.com. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye.